0: I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, but right now I'm doing a series about how not to waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense, and I spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and get the most out of what you are doing. So my master book list can be found on my website, theancientbridge.com, and I will add to it as needed. Scripture this week comes from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. And there are a lot of great scholarly books on the Psalms, so I'll be beefing up the list this week with the ones that I've learned a lot from, and there will be even more on the master list I will be putting together when I actually do the teaching series on the Psalms, which is coming up in two weeks, I think. We'll see. So how many different kinds of Psalms would you guess there are? Many would assume that All psalms are just straight-up works of praise, but truthfully, praise psalms are actually in the minority. Although most psalms have an aspect of praise within them somewhere, and I think actually all of them do, there are many different sorts of psalms, and they all need to be approached differently. If you've heard me teach in the past, then you know that the number one category of psalms is actually laments. That's right. More psalms, about 40%, are devoted to tears, complaining, or crying out to an accusing God than any other kind. In fact, I believe that the lament psalms are the most powerful and instructive in terms of living out a covenant relationship with God that's neither shallow nor insulting to his intelligence. To cry out is an act of profound trust in his goodness and his love. So let's go over some definitions that are important before delving into the psalms. We've already covered the definition of lament, but the word psalm itself is a sacred song or hymn. The roots of the word go back into ancient Greek with a word that I have gotten tired of trying to figure out how to pronounce. That means to pluck a stringed instrument. A psalmist is someone who wrote one of the Psalms and is usually anonymous. Psalter is a related word that comes from the Greek psalterion, the Greek word for a type of harp, and it refers to the entire book of Psalms. Doxology is another common word that refers to a liturgical expression of praise. And liturgical is a word that refers refers to uh, formal, formulaic, public worship, or you could call it scripted. Doxologies are generally used to close out worship services, and you probably knew what most or all of those words meant, but I didn't want it to be any more confusing than I normally am. The Hebrew name for the Book of Psalms is Tehillim, which is a word meaning praise. But the majority of the Psalms is not praise at all. So how did it get that name? Well, there are a few reasons. First of all, even the laments almost always contain an aspect of praise, or at least an expression of trust in God to be faithful to his covenant people. Second, the Psalter is split up into five sections, each of which ends with a doxology, a formal scripted praise hymn. Third, although the psalms are quite the mixture of different types of songs, the last six are like the fireworks at the end of the day at, you know, Disneyland. They're just unabashed, unapologetic praise with nothing else. They are a grand celebration of the greatness of Yahweh. And as we leave the reading of the Psalter in this mood of exhilaration, uh, naming the entire collection to Helim is more than appropriate, even if it's not quite accurate. We've talked a lot about the naming of biblical books. Some of them are named for the first word, uh, like Bereshit instead of the Greek Genesis and Bamidbar for uh, numbers. While others are named for the traditional source for the material or the bulk of it, like Samuel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. But I mean Samuel's dead for most of first and second Samuel, but he is the focus of the beginning of what was the combined scroll uh, for that time period. This leads to the need to acknowledge that the Psalter was what scholars refer to as an open or living book, meaning that it was open for the addition of new material for roughly a thousand years, and so had numerous authors, and some are given to us by name, but most are not. Moses is probably the earliest psalmist, and the post-exilic priests are likely the last. And so we have songs of praise and lament stretching from the time in the wilderness years to after the return from Babylon, well after. David is the most often named author, along with the sons of Korah and Asaph. And yet, we aren't even entirely sure, you know, due to the vagaries of Hebrew conjunctions, which of the ones attributed to David are by David, or written for David, or in the style of David. Add to that, there are 14 named Psalms where authors and situations are given, which were obviously added later and guided how they were to be read, but didn't always make logical sense and so are considered to be non-canonical. These Psalms tend to specifically be about David. Now, we can clearly see that some of the descriptions were there before the Septuagint was, you know, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, others were only added later. And, you know, later the Syriac added even more. It isn't a huge deal, as the notes were added to assist worship and not in an attempt to be doctrinal or to be considered inerrant or anything like that. Now, one of the absolutely maddening things about the Psalms is that there seems to have been a deliberate decision not to sort them, but to just add them in as they were either written or found. It's very likely that the Psalms of David's time were written down and stored in libraries with other records, as well as during the time of Solomon when formal temple worship became more and more liturgical and reproducible in nature. Certain psalms could be sung by the pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem for the festival. You know, they're called songs of a set. Others were sung on certain festivals and some during specific offerings. Anyway, all were appropriate for public gatherings, while some were likely memorized for private life and could be adapted to specific circumstances. Let's talk about the seven different kinds of Psalms that we find not only in the Psalter, but also throughout the Bible. Songs and poetry are far from limited to the Ketuvim, which is the Hebrew name for the more creative books of the Bible, differentiating them from the Torah and the historical narratives from works like Job and Ecclesiastes and such. Now, although all the Psalms are poetry, they aren't poetic in the typical European sense. Although they are translated in ways to better appeal to our desire for rhythm, the Hebrew generally has no rhythm in our sense of what would constitute poetry. Instead, they relied on simile, metaphor, parallelism, personification, and repetition. And we've covered most of those previously, so I'm not going to dwell on them when we have so much material to cover and not enough time to do it in. My next teaching series will actually be on the Psalms, and so we'll cover all of these in depth when we get to that. And I'm really looking forward to it. By repetition, I'm referring to the verses that have either identical or similar structure occurring throughout the psalm that really tie the content together as a cohesive whole. And it can seem like rhythm when it's like in English, but it isn't. An inclusio, for example, is what we call it when the first and last lines in the psalm are exactly the same. Parallelism actually deserves a separate program because there are seven different types. Parallelisms are usually said to equate two different lines by just swapping out nouns and verbs, but in truth, that's only the tip of the iceberg. I strongly recommend picking up Tremper Longman's book, How to Read the Psalms, for an introduction to this, and he has some excellent recommendations for more in-depth resources. Now, there are seven general categories of psalms, but of course that number will vary depending on who you ask. Some categories can be meshed with others, and others can be divided up further, but I think this is a really good basic list, and it's what Longman teaches, so it's a great starting place. He breaks the psalms up into hymns, laments, psalms of remembrance, psalms of trust, Psalms of Thanksgiving, Wisdom Psalms, and Kinship Psalms. But keep in mind that these categories are anything but cut and dried, and there's a lot of overlap, and these categories are therefore, they're general and useful, but not exhaustive or set in stone. This is poetry, and poetry isn't a science, but an art form. It wasn't like they had this list that it had to contain such and such elements in such and such an order. That's how we're forced to write poetry in high school and not out in the real world uh, when speaking to God, when pouring out our heart to God. And something important to understand about Psalms that you can get away without doing in the narratives is although prose, which is how stories are written, can be read Stories can be read as stories, okay? But poetry is written creatively and often at a very deep level and must be taken in slowly and deliberately. The Psalms are meant to be read not only with the intellect in gear, but also with all of the emotions in our arsenals. If we're reading the Psalms strictly clinically, then we're not reading them as intended. Yes, they have historical context that can help us to understand where the author's coming from, and it helps us to experience them. But experiencing the Psalms is the whole point of them, even being written down for us in the first place. They teach us how to relate to God like nothing else in the Bible. So we're going to go through the seven main types and mood is the determining factor for how we're to receive psalms and you know so it's really incredibly important so we understand the word hymn as being about worship and a hymn will generally have three elements a general calling of the people to worship followed by giving them the reasons that they should worship or need to worship and then a directive to keep on worshiping. If you've read some of the creation psalms or the Exodus psalms, then you'll recognize the pattern and the repeating themes that focus on historical provision and deliverance, you know, real life events. Jerusalem or Zion also pops up quite a bit in hymns. Let's look at Psalm 150. And it's a great example of pure worship. Hallelujah! Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing symbols. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Make note of the repetition of the phrase, praise him, which really gives this psalm structure. Laments are fairly straightforward, and they make up 40% of the Psalter, a 58 out of 150, which is, wow, that's a lot. They're the most common type of psalm and can be personal or national. A person can be complaining and crying out to God, or the entire nation can be. In personal laments, the writer can be obsessed with their own thoughts and fears, or frustrated with God's seeming lack of interest and or justice, or consumed with anger and fear because of enemies. Laments are not only complaints, but also petitions. They complain to God because he is the superior covenant partner and the only one who can save or forgive or give justice. The lament in and of itself is an act of trust and faith despite near hopelessness. They generally start out with a calling out to God called an invocation like My God, why have you forsaken me? This is followed by asking for help in light of the covenant relationship, even if that relationship is not mentioned, because covenant is the only reason they can reach out and ask in the first place. It's the only basis for complaint that we have. Then come the complaints and the profession of innocence, which is always hard for me to read because, like, no one's innocent. But when we read it as a, in this situation, I am blameless, it becomes easier to swallow because like, David, no, man, you are messed up and you have not only sinned against God, okay? (laughs) Then sometimes there are actual curses hurled against their enemy, if there is one to be cursed, called an imprecation. And these sorts of laments are actually called imprecatory psalms but there's still laments. But at the end, most laments do turn around to expressing confidence in God and blessing him. Laments show real relationship like no other sort of literature within the Bible. They are <laughs> brutally honest. None display this more vividly or more disturbingly than Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, There we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees for our captors there asked us for songs. And our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Ouch. And yet it was an honest cry for retributive justice. And I think we've all been there wanting them to hurt every bit or as badly or more so than they hurt us. Thanksgiving psalms are actually related to laments because they seem to happen on the other side of or in anticipation of deliverance from current circumstances. A Thanksgiving psalm doesn't really hide well because, right off, it announces an intention to praise God for such and such, and then it gives a sort of testimony of what's been going on in the life of the writer and invites all those within hearing range to join in worship and in celebration of the wonderful things that God has done or is about to do. And then the problem is generally repeated, and they talk about how God resolved the problem. It's very likely that something like this would accompany a todah, which is a Thanksgiving offering at the temple. Let's look at Psalm 100. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we're his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness throughout all generations. A confident psalm might be a new one for you. I mean, at least the name. There are only like nine of them in the Psalter, and so not exactly as prolific as the 58 laments. But these are very rich in metaphor and praise, and we just see pure trust expressed in terms of God being our rock, shepherd, a strong tower, a refuge, and help, uh, there, Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just the psalmist telling it like it is and reminding us why we can trust Yahweh. Psalm 23 is the most known example, beginning with the Lord is my shepherd. But let's look at the lesser known Psalm 11. I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked string their bows; they put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright will see his face. Okay, so Remembrance Psalms are generally concerned with calling the congregation to remember the past great acts of Yahweh. If you participate in the Passover Seder with an Haggadah, then you know we recite them a lot on that night. These Psalms are historical in nature and are very concrete and... There are five of them that really fit exclusively into this category. They are heavy with references to the historical deliverance out of Egypt and to the establishment of David's dynasty. They are really more concrete than most of the Psalms because the psalmist isn't really focused on anything except recounting the amazing signs and wonders and the provision of God. As such, there are no short remembrance psalms that I will have time to read. But good examples are Psalms 135 and 136. There are also four wisdom psalms. And you might protest that all psalms contain wisdom. And although that is true, this is a specific category. And these psalms are dedicated to comparing the life of the wise and virtuous against the life of the foolish and wicked. Psalm 1 is the easiest example to point out with the blessed is the man who does not, and in fact, I'll just go ahead and read that one. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And until this was pointed out to me, it never occurred to me how much this sounds like it belongs in the Proverbs instead. Now, the final category is the kingship psalm, which are largely about either God is our king or praising God for his blessings upon David and his descendants or Petitioning God to bless them. Psalm 47 is a great example. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a jubilant cry. For the Lord, the Most High, is awe-inspiring, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses for us our inheritance. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God ascends among shouts of joy. The Lord with the sound of a ram's horn. Sing praise to God. Sing praise. Sing praise to our King. Sing praise. Sing a song of wisdom, for God is King of the whole earth. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the peoples have assembled with the people of the God of Abraham. For the leaders of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Now, the Psalms in general are very doctrinally and theologically heavy because they spend a lot of time telling us what to believe about God and his dealings with his people and how we should be living in light of that ongoing and eternal covenant relationship. They're just a goldmine for distilling down a lot of the rest of what is in the Bible, frankly. And before we draw to a close for this week, I want to talk about three of my pet peeves when it comes to the Psalms. One, just because a person expresses a desire for violence and retribution doesn't mean that God endorses those sentiments. You know, Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, totally put the kibosh on that as we are to bless and pray for our enemies. But the Psalms represent our honest desires and feelings, but not everything in them represents how God wants us to feel about these things. The Psalms are an honest interaction between covenant partners and not a blueprint for what we should go out and act upon. Two. The use of the term Selah is problematic because there is no agreement, neither Jewish nor Gentile, as to what it even means. And I will see people write a post that they want people to think about. They will end it with Selah. But for all we know, it was a musical directive. And so to me, it looks silly and presumptuous. It it just does. I'm sorry. Um, I'm not sorry. Being honest here. (laughs) And maybe it means break out into wild interpretive dance. We just don't know. Three, the idea that there are psalms that are purely messianic but had no context other than predictive prophecy. All psalms are useful for the individual or corporately and what people and the nation were going through, even if they ended up pointing to the Messiah with the ancient equivalent of neon lit signs and blinding floodlights. Yes, we can find Yeshua in everything, but that doesn't mean that our goal is to focus on him in them and thereby ignoring the richness of their ability to lead us in vocalization toward God. Next week is the last week of the study series And I want to talk about the concept of inerrancy and where it came from and what it even means, which is actually different for everybody. Anyway, that's it. And uh, have a great week. Thanks for joining me.